She's the vegan garlic aioli to my gentrification for any choy. And they're the author of the Nobel Prize winning novel, The Color Purple Nurple, Denez Smith. And you're listening to Verses, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Presented by the Poetry Foundation and Post Loudness. How are you doing, Franny? Hi, I'm good, dude. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I feel like I killed my husband in March, and the life insurance check just cleared. Yes. We're in the clear. Yes. They so arrested you... my sister for it. Yes. yes. You t- have taken her furs. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm living closet. a new life. I'm a newly out-the-closet lesbian with a dead husband. Yes. <laughs> That's a great response in general to how are you doing. Girl, I feel like a, a newly, newly out-the-closet out lesbian. lesbian with a dead, dead husband. husband. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. My for favorite you. kind of auntie. Yes. The one that kills husband and is always out the closet. Listen, do you have do you feel like you have aunties in the world? Like who's like your like top like poetic auntie? Oh wow. Like okay. poetry auntie. Okay, so a poetry auntie is then let's define it first, right? Yes. It's like different than like a poetry mom. Truly. Right. Yep. You know, lately I've been feeling like I guess like Tracy K. Smith is like my like wow. rich poetry auntie. That's I know. She's like, a nice thing to be able to have. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. Um, like, I think she's like always somebody that I looked up as far as the mm-hmm. work. And in this last year, she's just like done a couple of things. Like, she mentioned my book in like O Magazine mm-hmm. and just like put me in an anthology that she put together. And just like mm-hmm. a couple of things were like, it's felt like she's been like my rich auntie who like doesn't show up to Thanksgiving, but is like like sending a check in the mail sometimes mm-hmm. and being like, I see you, kid. Your Aww. mom told me you didn't have good grades. And so I, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've actually gotten the chance to to really meet her. I met her once before, but I got to like talk to her for an extended amount of time yeah, recently. Oh, that's so nice. And I was like, oh, yeah, like this is my auntie. And didn't, right. haven't you said before that like your poetry mom would be Patricia Smith? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's just like a Smith family. Yeah, my my dream <laughs> is to have a um, a Smith reunion concert. Yes. The Smith's reunion concert and it's just the three of us. Oh, that <laughs> sounds, that's, that, that's a dream that could be very possible. Yeah, yeah, it's probably coming in 2020. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. How about you though? You got a poetry auntie out here in these streets? Well, I mean... Speaking of like literal last name sharing, you know, Don Mi Choi, I do feel like it's kind of oh. looking out for me sometimes. Oh, you yay. know, like, yeah, she like hit me up to pull me into you know, like a translation project mm-hmm. for, for like um, this Korean American PhD student, uh-huh. I think. But I don't know if, if she's really like a poetic auntie or if she's more like a really cool older cousin that's like looking out for me and like taking me shopping for skincare mm-hmm. like my literal cool older cousin did l- this <laughs> summer it was great um but i feel like even is a i also feel like it's like someone who's like who's like out here kind of looking out for me mm-hmm. and being and like like putting me on in certain ways and just like a beacon of like that's how cool I could be yeah I could be that cool I think that is you always want to be your auntie right like you never want to admit that you want to be your mom but you do want to be your auntie you do want to be your auntie yeah it's true it's It's true true. I want to be my auntie so shout out to Amy and Danmi and Tracy and Patricia and all of our yeah and our our guest today is a self-proclaimed poetry auntie (laughs) to one of our uh, to one of our former guests uh, Emily Yoon yeah Uh, Kamiko Han is the author of nine books of poems including Brain Fever Toxic Flora, both collections prompted by science. The Narrow Road to the Interior, which is a beast of a collection. The Unbearable Heart, which received the American Book Award. Earshot, which was awarded the Theodore Rothke Memorial Poetry Prize and the Association of Asian American Studies Literature Award. As part of her service to the CUNY community, she has initiated a chapbook festival that has become an annual event co-sponsored by major literary organizations. Since then, she's added chapbooks to her publication list, including most recently the chapbook. 
Brood. Her honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Penn Volcker Award, a Shelley Memorial Prize, a Leela Wallace Reader's Digest Writers Award, as well as fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts and the New York Foundation for the Arts. She has taught in graduate programs at the University of Houston and New York University um, and is a distinguished professor in the MFA program of creative writing and literary translation at Queens College, the City University of New York. She also has taught um, for various literary organizations, including the Fine Arts Work Center, Cave Kahneman, and Kuniman. And on top of that, in 2016, Han was elected president of the Board of Governors for the Poetry Society of America. Nothing but respect for my president. Let's get into this interview with Kamiko Han. Yeah. yeah. This is me eating a carrot. And then she'll eat yeah. a carrot very she'll, quietly. You're just be like, yeah. Wow, <laughs> that is really uh, provocative, yes. if not mm, sadistic. That's... <laughs> It's like, it could be sadistic. It's erotic. I think it's like... Oh, it's so erotic? For well, me. Oh. <laughs> I view it as erotic. I mean, not that it turns me off, but like, mean, I think oh, I view you, it as erotic. Tumbly? Do you have a tumbly? I don't, but oh, I, I, okay. I, be, I think it's just like, it's such an intimate type of video that they're usually making. Uh-huh. It's like, yeah, they're like always like very close. Yeah, the whispering yeah. and like, they're always very close to the camera. I feel like it's yeah. always a woman. I've never seen a man doing it. I don't know, something about it feels like, I think because I understand that they're trying to make tingly sensations happen in somebody, I'm yeah. like, oh, this is sexual. <laughs> is a person who suffers or who experiences that, it's not necessarily erotic for them. Yeah. No, but it is pleasurable, no. I think. It is pleasurable? Oh, okay. Yeah, well, if it's, it's pleasurable, pleasurable, then it's thing. not sadistic. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Thing more fetishistic okay. than sadistic. Oh. oh, I wonder if some people do experience pain from it, though, and still yeah. kind of like the experience of it, which oh. still makes it erotic, but sadistic erotic. Interesting. Anyway. Like, here we are in now the studio. Now I know. Okay. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Now y'all got me feeling like a sub. It's too early. <laughs> I'm thinking about all the ways I want to be punished. <laughs> we could make like that. We could make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I've been teaching for 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, we're going to have a good time. Oh, (laughs) I'm going to lose my job. (laughs) Well, we're so happy, Kimiko, to have you here with us. Thank you so much for being here. And your reading last night, you Mm -hmm. read with Emily Yoon at the Poetry Foundation, who was a guest on our show like a few episodes back. Mm -hmm. Have you all met before? Uh, She was uh, a student in my grad class at NYU, where I occasionally... Moonlight, shall we say. And um, I was the one who took all the pages of her many poems of her uh, potential thesis and we laid it out. I can't remember whether it was on the floor or on a desk, but we laid it all out and we and we looked at it. Mild. Which was really fun. That's so great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It must have been nice to get to do that reading together and celebrate oh, this book doing that. You. I love yeah. doing that. I love What's being, that experience like seeing the students that you get to work with like now, you know, being full-fledged writers in the world? Is there a type of like, I don't know, like parental pride that you feel? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, with someone like Emily and also Monica Sook, I had both of them at the same Shout time. Out Monica <laughs> <Sook>. <laughs> yeah. I, was, yes. I, I felt like I was also their poetry auntie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so... I wouldn't say parental pride, but anti-pride. <laughs> That's a particular kind of pride. We respect aunties a lot. I think oh, yeah. we have a lot For of talks sure. about sort of like okay. the, the particular yeah. necessity of aunties yeah. in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are some people who I consider my poetic aunties who don't know, oh. I think, necessarily that uh, they're my aunties. Uh, 
But just like I look from far away, and that's I'm just like that's that's my. Auntie. That's your rich poetic auntie. You know? <laughs> doesn't always come to Thanksgiving. Shows up to like every other Christmas. You know, we, we got it. I like that. <laughs> I like that very much. Were there yeah. were there poets when you were an emerging poet that like uh, played you? that role for you? Who auntie? Do you? Uh, uh, no, <laughs> I didn't go through the MFA program. Mm -hmm. I went to University of Iowa as an undergraduate. So I had Louise Glick and Charles Wright and Marvin Bell. So I had, you know, some real heavies. But mm -hmm. undergrads didn't get the kind of mentoring. Mm. And I was too timid to seek that. Mm. By the time I might have applied for an MFA program, I just felt that I had kind of done what I needed to do. And mm -hmm. I was out of Iowa and back in New York City. And I'll tell you, at that point, you know, I was hanging out with Seku Sundiata and... Oh, Seku. Yeah, oh. and I was hanging out with, mm. you know, all these quote-unquote street poets, and they were looking at me like, really? <laughs> you need to look at that page in order to <laughs> perform or read your poem? <laughs> really? <laughs> so I was coming from one tradition and moving to a whole nother tradition. Mm. I didn't have aunties. I had older cousins. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for sure. And yeah, they looked out for me, but not aunties sure. <laughs> or uncles. Yeah. yeah. I know that for especially Asian American women poets of my generation, yeah. we especially try to like find like the Asian American women models. Mm -hmm. Like they're more sort of like these days, but I think you occupy a place in the like hearts of Asian American women poets of my generation. You're a rare and precious <laughs> figure, I think, for for a lot of us. Thank you for saying that, and I I, I really really mean that. Um, you know, I'll say to some people at a poetry reading, you know, I'm little mixed Hapahaoli Japanese American girl who mm -hmm. was brought up in the suburbs, mm. born in 1955, and. I was raised at a time and coming from my background where to be a good girl meant to not be angry, mm -hmm. not speak up, pretty much just be quiet. Uh, and, I, and I came from a family of artists, but still it was pretty much behave yourself because I was a girl. Mm -hmm. So for me, speaking up was and still is a radical act. Mm -hmm. And I had to find permission where I could, and ultimately you have to give yourself permission. Mm -hmm. But if I can do that, especially for Asian American women, that's such a pleasure. That's really, really important to me. If I can say something and it allows someone then to give themselves permission to write stuff that they didn't even know mm -hmm. they wanted to, wow. <laughs> wanted to write. Where did those first permissions to kind of speak up and act out come from? Was it from writing and poetry or was that from other spaces? I know you've talked a lot about the Marxist circles um, <laughs> that, you, that you moved in. Well, the Marxist circles actually um, were the opposite. <laughs> um, because if you're in a, a political meeting, you have an obligation to have an opinion mm -hmm. and to state your opinion. Uh, and if you don't, then why not? <laughs> you are there for a reason. <laughs> And what do you think, um, Kimiko? And and what are you going to do about it? <laughs> mm. You know, so that that was really a different experience. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know, sit down and be quiet. 
um, it was sit down and what do you think? Where are you going to go to do your agitprop? Mm-hmm. People think agitprop is just, you know, stirring up trouble. Mm-hmm. But agitprop in its essence really is agitation just means to become involved mm-hmm. where you are in a grassroots organization. It could be in a union. It could be in a classroom. It mm-hmm. could be in a club. It's like get involved wherever you are. And then the propaganda is just raising people's consciousness to class consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that is a process. And that is not bogarting or bludgeoning. That's having conversations. So I had to learn how to speak up, Mm -hmm. how to think clearly, how to try and figure out where people were coming from, which means that I had to figure out where I was coming from as well. Mm -hmm. Were you already writing poetry at that time as well? Or? I've been writing poetry since I was in third grade. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, well, yeah, but uh, from high school on, I was, okay. that's what I wanted to do. Okay. Did you yeah. see your poetry start to change at that moment then? Well, I, I mean, I really did grow up in the suburbs. I was very isolated, but mm-hmm. uh, I had Japanese language classes mm-hmm. in New York City at the Buddhist temple on 105th Street and Riverside Drive. <laughs> and um, because of the time it was, some of my classmates in that language class were also mm-hmm. becoming mm-hmm. involved in civil rights. Oh. And so it was in the um, context of this language class. That it that was in the context, yeah. For example, I also took dance class. Oh. And also in that dance class was Yuri Koshiyama's daughter. Wow. So we were just starting to think and do things. Yeah. Well, the Kochiyamas were doing things forever. And I wasn't necessarily doing anything. I was just, <laughs> I wasn't doing anything. I was taking a dance class. <laughs> um, but becoming influenced by and, and having conversations that I mm-hmm. wasn't having in the suburbs, mm-hmm. uh, certainly. I wasn't writing about those experiences. Mm-hmm. But, you know, once you start writing honestly, authentically, then you have to start questioning and going deeper and deeper and allowing things to be complex. Mm. So that's where some of the Marxism comes in. If you start talking about the woman's body, then you need to start talking about the history of, you know, why are we where we are today? Mm. (laughs) You know, with sex trafficking on the one hand Mm -hmm. and a woman 36 years after she was uh, assaulted speaking before the American public and mm-hmm. senators. I mm-hmm. mean, anyway. Mm-hmm. So it kind of changes how you're approaching the objects, right? It's no longer like stagnant and now yes. it has history. It has futures. It has everything. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's what yeah. I mean by allowing things to be complex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that idea of allowing things to be complex as like the political. What work does that do in the context of your poem and in the context of poetry as agitprop, you know, as mm-hmm. like agitation and and, mm-hmm. and I guess like propaganda sounds like a dirty word when it's put next to art, mm-hmm. but, I, mm-hmm. you know, in the least dirty. I think the wrong the people word. taught us to dirty it. Yeah, up, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I should say that I don't view my poetry as agitprop, mm. but I view myself as a citizen mm. because my poetry isn't outwardly political and some people would say it's not political at all and that's you know it is what it is it's uh, whatever views they have but for example if I'm reading at a political rally 
uh, that has to do with, say, immigration and housing, and I read a love poem, that love poem in that context mm. is very different mm. because it might be about parents being separated and having their child taken away, and so there's very little room in their life for affection, for making love. Mm. So it's how I read my poems. Mm. It's how I decide what to read in the context. Mm. So that's taking the poem as an object and utilizing it um, within the context of, say, agitprop or social justice or whatever phrase you want to use. It seems to be in line with the idea that the poems that you write are existing in the context of the world. And and, and I, I guess I wonder, like, do you think of... I don't know. What, what the fuck am I trying to say? <laughs> Let's workshop. I, I guess on the one hand, it seems like one wants to assume that every reader will enter the poem understanding that this poem is a love poem in the context of the world being what it is and denying certain people access to love. And so those are like the stakes in which the poem is is like happening. I guess then there's also the danger that somebody will walk into that poem maybe ignoring those stakes and see it in a vacuum and, and see it without that importance. And, and I, I guess I wonder how do you reconcile that? Like, do you see that as a, as a risk or how do you deal with that? Well, I guess that's part of the complexity, although that's after the poem is already written. Sure. I think when I read a love poem, I don't think of it as necessarily when it was written or what was happening socially. First, I think I read it in isolation of what is happening in my life because I'm experiencing it. Mm -hmm. And then all the other dimensions, facets happen, mm -hmm. right? If it's a good poem, hopefully every time you read it, something else will happen. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm hearing. I think it, I'm hearing maybe more something about the choice of what poems like we reach towards, especially in that act of a reading, right? Like that same love poem, right, is different at the rally mm -hmm. as it is in a regular reading or like what it means to read a love poem any day. I don't mm -hmm. know. We have to decide what am I going to offer to this audience today, mm -hmm. regardless of the context, mm -hmm. I think. What changes, maybe for me, I, I have to think about myself here, is the choice to continue to do that love poem or to do mm -hmm. um, any poem on that day. And yeah. that, it's even that arrangement of poems and to think about like what statement am I giving across these five poems that I'm going to do? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean for me to be doing it in this city, in this bar or this university mm -hmm. <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. um, that context is like how you choose to show up as a poet. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. maybe it's also like that complexifying or like allowing to be complex. Oh, that's a nice word. Is that a word? I, I like it. I don't know. I I'm like just, it. I like that fi in the add middle. Add the if fi information <laughs> to everything, you know? Academics also are like just constantly making up words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. So that's true. I've been hanging out with some academics. <laughs> um, but allowing the poem to be complex. Also, I think um, sort of constructing poems with some openings in them that are both mysterious to me a lot of times when I'm reading them in a way that I can bring something into the poem and like see how like what I'm bringing to the poem fits into the spaces there. Oh. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think the way I love to write and love to read is when a word or a phrase or a whole piece is like a portal. Mm. So if I start reading uh, Yeats's Lita and the Swan which is about Zeus raping Leda, mm -hmm. all of a sudden I'm 
seeing our recent Senate hearings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it becomes this portal. And for me, for my own writing, sometimes it just starts off with one word. Mm. I like to ask my students, I put on the blackboard, what do you find in common with these words? Mm. Pine, rose, leaves, hedges. You know, the obvious answer is they're all from nature, but they're all nouns and verbs. And so when you can make language work that hard, then it becomes a portal to go somewhere else. Mm. If I can do that, then that creates spaces, not just for me to move through, but hopefully for the reader to move through. Mm. So if I say pine, and it's a pine tree, but there's also something about longing, Mm. then I've done my work. Mm. If that is happening simultaneously and you smell it, I think that's where the openness or mystery Mm. can come in. Mm. So I've been thinking a lot about portals, and I've been talking in the past few years a lot about portals and about words being a single portal. So, for example, when I give myself writing prompts, especially with the Science Times or what have you, that's for me, that's what happens. I start out with, you know, a fruit fly, and I end up writing about feeding my daughter spaghetti or something like that (laughs) when she's in her high chair, Mm -hmm. which was many years ago. Um, Can I ask, what is it about that quality of of words working hard in that way that creates a portal? It has to do with the word itself, Mm -hmm. association. Mm -hmm. So if I am committing (laughs) a word association, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, if I'm engendering that, right, then that provokes, it massages, it allows, Mm. it that part of the brain to do a lot of, a Mm. lot more word association. Mm -hmm. And that's where all the fun is, right? Mm -hmm. That's how we protect ourselves walking down the street at night and you know someone's behind you. That's Mm. intuition. Yeah, That's when you wake up in the middle of the night because you know it's about to rain and you have to close the window, mm. you know, where you're flirting and you're, oh, is, is that really <laughs> happening, right? That's all intuitive. Yeah. And we don't, because intuition was so often decidedly female and therefore not important, it wasn't part of knowledge and thinking, mm. we don't value that. Mm. I think I got my brains and discipline from my dad, but for my mother, I got my intuition. And mm. she did artwork. She was an artist, a visual mm. artist as well, but she was much more intuitive than my father. Mm. And I really valued that. So intuition is something that um, we all use as artists. And I'll tell my students in writing workshops, I'll say, you know, we're going to do something here that you might not do in other classes. I'm going to tell you to leave your brain outside the door sometimes, <laughs> right? We're going to use our intuition, and that's the same thing that keeps you safe walking down the streets in New mm-hmm. York. Mm-hmm. And we're going to use that part of the brain to experience poems. Mm-hmm. That's an important, um, quote-unquote, muscle to use, yeah. intuition. And I, and I think you're talking about triggering the reader's intuition, too, yes, right? Yes, exactly. You're, like what you're saying about Yeats, right, um, who I always want to call Yeats. Um, that's <laughs> I know. I know. I <laughs> um, but, you know, like Yeats, yeah, yeah, who Keats for all intents and purposes that I know, he's dead. But when you can read that poem about Zeus, right, that it triggers for you like a portal into your current moment, mm-hmm. right, that Yeats had no idea right. about. I think that's what we mean when we mean, like, trusting the reader. We're trusting that we have, like, sort of set up 
these little triggers for them to get there themselves and get okay. wherever they're going to go. Yeah. Um, you know, because we're not all going to slip through that same portal. Absolutely. You know, we're all going to go through somewhere else. But let me set up something enough that it does have an effect. And all I can mm-hmm. trust that it, is that it will send you somewhere and where you go is up to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Earlier you said, you know, if people don't see my poems as political, as overtly political, that's okay. And and it, it sounds like, you know, you're someone who is open to lots of different interpretations of, mm-hmm. of your poems. Are there things that you want people to not miss if there's some some quality of the poems that you don't want to sacrifice to the infinite number of interpretations like what would that be um first i'd say that it's not okay (laughs) (laughs) that people would find my work devoid of any kind of social consciousness i mean any given poem would not be obvious and Mm -hmm. maybe maybe it isn't there but what I would love and probably is the least thing likely to happen when people read my work is to see that my work is really informed by Japanese poetics. Mm. And of course, that means that, you know, you have to know something about it. So why would I punish myself and hope that that would, <laughs> that that might be, you know, an experience? Mm-hmm. But, uh, well, I, I hope people would know that for me. When I write the poems that became the collection, Brain Fever really is informed by my study of Japanese poetics. Mm-hmm. For example, in a haiku, you have a lot of wordplay because you have to use that incredibly tight economy and explode it open. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The double meanings, the literary illusion, all of that. That's what I would like. Mm-hmm. I'll be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I like to say to people. <laughs> I think I've I've read a thing you wrote about like associations um, from concept to concept in Japanese mm-hmm. poetics, like working somewhat differently from Western literature. Japanese is called vocabulary poor um, because they don't have as many words literally as we have in the English language. Interesting. Um, oh, vocabulary poor. That's a rich phrase. Yes. Like yes. yes. <laughs> and part of what that means is also that there may be one sound that has several meanings. Mm. So the sound S-H-I, she, is the word for poetry, death, and the number four. Whoa. So that's crazy. Yeah, that's And there that's... are a lot of words like that. Whoa. So again, to write a haiku, there's all sorts of ways of exploding things open. And that's what I like to expect from my work, to have that kind of explosion. <laughs> that seems like the kind of benefit of something to be quote-unquote vocabulary poor then, mm-hmm. right? Sure. That it offers right. those meanings, right? Because then in English, it's like, damn it, I wish this word didn't just mean one thing. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Vocabulary poor, but rich in multiple meanings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you asked me um, about closure, yes. and that's also another thing that I'm rabid about. Um, I was in graduate school kind of briefly, and I got out as quickly as possible um, <laughs> because I am vocabulary poor myself. <laughs> Personally, I am vocabulary poor. But in that time, I read a book, Poetic Closure, A Study of How Poems End, I think is the mm-hmm. subtitle by Barbara Hernstein-Smith. I guess I'd say the gist of it is 
Repetition creates expectation, mm -hmm. and you expect it to keep going like the heart. You expect to keep going until it doesn't, mm -hmm. but there can be signals, a way to signal closure. It could be thematic. It could be yeah. sonic. It could be all of that. But we're still creatures of pattern at mm -hmm. the end of yes, the day. Yes, yeah. exactly. Pattern, mm -hmm. repetition, and the deviation from mm -hmm. that. I like to look at closure that way and to see a poem not end but close. Mm. So I don't want it to just be sealed off mm. with no resonance. Mm. The last couple of books you've written have been very dependent upon science and like going to these articles, mm -hmm. right? Science Today, the New York Times, and right. um, finding these things and then sort of making these prompts out of them. I'm curious because that seems to go so far against sort of this notion of like write what you know that so many of us get as a directive at some point in our career. What does it feel like to sort of be playing so much and writing what you don't know, writing this curiosity, being an unexpert? How is it differently tickling your brain? I think I have to write what I know, mm. um, but I don't start out with what I know. Okay. Mm. <laughs> I um, start out with, again, it's the portal to write to what I want to know, mm -hmm. to write to what is revealed so that I can know maybe. Mm -hmm. I'm, th I'm thinking out loud, so I might change my mind after I close the door here. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I think that's just a different take on write what you know. Mm. Because, okay. for example, not that I haven't done this myself, but there are a lot of books that are one project, one theme, one subject matter especially. Mm -hmm. I think that has to do with marketing. I think that has to do with MFA programs mm. and, and so forth and blah, blah, blah. If those projects, collections succeed, it has to ultimately hit a nerve. Mm. You really have to end up asking yourself, what do I have at stake in writing about this? Mm -hmm. And bringing yourself to that uh, directly or indirectly. Otherwise, you know what? Why should anybody care? You might as well read a really good essay on it. Mm -hmm. I was talking with um, a student, Minty, somewhere, mm -hmm. and they're working on a collection about Emmett Till. And I think I kind of messed them up when I said, why? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, why, you know, yeah. like, especially like, you know, people can go read, you know, Marilyn Nelson has the whole wreath for Matil. It's great. Mm -hmm. um, there are all these other collections and it's this being willing to admit and also show up in your own obsessions. Yes. Not letting it sort of be divorced from yourself, but saying like, this is why I am obsessed with this thing. Right. Mm -hmm. This is what keeps me coming back. And that mm -hmm. me being very important, whether explicitly talked through as an I or not, you know, but yeah. I think we have to allow ourselves to be seen salivating a little mm -hmm. bit over these things that we like, like that. to salivate over. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's where I come. What do you have at stake? Mm -hmm. Steak. Salivate. So we're, we're totally about, hey. we're totally. Hey. <laughs> See, word association. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I think also like, so Brain Fever is your, is your ninth collection of poems. Is that yes. right? Yes. It and is. you have a new collection also on the way. Is that true? Or um, new yeah. I'm finishing up a, um, what I hope to be my next collection. The working title is Foreign Bodies. Ooh. And <laughs> <laughs> one of the long poems that I was working on that I think will still be in the book, I hope so, has to do with uh, this doctor who invented an endoscopy for taking things out of children's esophagus that they had swallowed. Wow. And that is called a foreign body. So oh. if a child swallows a safety pin, then um, they get a foreign body. 
then they have a foreign body and you can see them on x-rays and so forth. Amazing. So yeah. I am the safety pin <laughs> in the esophagus of America. That's right. <laughs> Amazing. That's great. Great That's news. Right. Yes, it is great news. <laughs> or the charm from the charm bracelet. Yes. <laughs> so um, I realized, though, that if that's going to be the title of my book, and it does suggest the foreign body, yeah, yeah. Um, I should write a poem called Foreign Body that's yeah. also about my own body and my mother's body. So mm. I, I wrote that poem. The book will end up being seemingly more autobiographical. Mm. So it has a lot about my father being a hoarder what that means to exhume things <laughs> from your father's home and being stuck with all this detritus. <laughs> so I wow. hope that's my next collection. Book 10. Okay. <laughs> that's so incredible. Book Thank 10. You. Thank you. The double digits, yeah. Wow. Oh, double digits. <laughs> are, there, are there things that you are learning writing book 10 that you wish you had known in book three or two or something? Um, I took a much longer time to put this book together mm. than I have. And I wish I had not been quite so reckless. Mm. I don't know if the word is impatient or mm. eager or to move a book forward. But, you know, recklessness might be my middle name <laughs> in a good and bad way. <laughs> So, you know, I think it's 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 what's allowed me to be very free and open with mm. my subject matter and my themes, but I've held these poems back longer mm. and I've worked on them more and I've shown them to more people. So, that's what I've learned. Hmm. Which book of the of the 10? <laughs> God, I hope to get there one day. <laughs> no. Uh do you feel like stretched you the most? Well, the book, um, The Unbearable Heart, came about after my mother died mm -hmm. uh, very suddenly in a car accident. These kids were in a car chase, and a group of white boys were trying to beat up a car of, I think they were Pakistani kids, mm -hmm. and they ended up plowing into my parents' car. And so uh, everything that I had been working on completely stopped and I began writing poems about loss that that very real loss mm -hmm. not just a figurative loss mm -hmm. and I have a long poem in there that's very important to me it's called uh, the hemisphere mm -hmm. and it's actually quote unquote about um, Flaubert's sex touring in Egypt <laughs> mm -hmm. that's one of the threads Speaking of making things complex, I really had to ask myself, especially after my mother died, you know, who are you to write about this? Mm -hmm. Who is Flaubert to write about it? And who are you to write about it? Mm -hmm. So that in particular really stretched me. Hmm. What conclusions did you come to asking that question? Who, who were you to write about it? It actually spirals back to an earlier part of our uh, chat here, and that is to allow things to be complex. Mm -hmm. Because I originally wanted to write in the voice of the uh, courtesan that mm -hmm. he kept visiting mm -hmm. in Egypt. And I had to ask myself, who are you, tenure-track uh, professor, and who are you to write in the voice of a sex worker? Mm -hmm. Who do you think you are? Mm -hmm. So I had her ask me that. Mm -hmm. 
And then I had uh, snippets of Flaubert describing her genitals. Uh, and his writing is so incredible that I had to try and uh, up the ante and write as gorgeously as his vulgar letters were mm. um, beautifully written. So there are all sorts of ways that I stretched. And also it's about the foreign body, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, in, in, in many ways, and about my mother's body and losing my mother. And did I ever have my mother? So, mm. And I have daughters. So there are a whole lot of girls and women's bodies happening and also the male gaze in there. But I think, and Claudia Rankin has said this too, Sometimes just changing the point of view helps make things complex. Yeah. Is it different to write about your parents these many years mm -hmm. later and these many years after their passing and after this book that you're talking about specifically? Mm -hmm. Well, my mother died uh, over 25 years ago, but my father actually just died last year. Oh. And my sister and I were left with a very difficult house and, quote-unquote, estate. Mm. When you say the word estate, you think, oh, it was a mansion. Yeah. <laughs> but in fact, it was 17 rooms, a really like. awful mm. uh, situation that we're just now still getting settled. Mm. And he was an artist, so there was a lot of valuable things in there mm. and a lot of things that might be valuable but are only valuable to people who really value esoteric things like tea ceremony spoons, <laughs> mm. um, literally uh, dozens of those. Um, so uh, what was your question? How do I write about my parents? Um, Which is such a, like a huge question, but I, I guess I, I was wondering if, if the way that you write about your mother in poems in recent years is mm -hmm. like how that relationship has changed yeah, part of that has to do with my just being older. Mm -hmm. um, I'm in my 60s. I have a granddaughter now as of last year. Wow. <laughs> and um, in this book that I'm hoping will be my next book, mm -hmm. I really write about more directly about death. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in an afterlife. I do believe that someday I will be wherever my mother is, even if she's nothing and that drives my husband crazy. He's like, well, how can you be somewhere if you're nothing? Mm. I mean, well, well. We'll be nothing together. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly my answer. So I'm hoping that's part of this book mm. is I will be dust as my mother is dust. I will be ashes as my mother is ashes. And I will be there with her. Mm. And uh, also writing how my father lost her ashes. <laughs> But then wow. we found them exactly where we thought they were. Wait, what? So there's what? all sorts of this weird stuff. This is the poem I was telling you about earlier that was <laughs> the ashes. It's a, it's a yeah. poem. It's yeah. A poem. yeah. <laughs> so you found them. Good. <laughs> yes, we found them. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm still writing about them, still writing about missing my mother and mm -hmm. still arguing with my father. And <laughs> but they take different iterations, shame. obviously. Shame. Yeah. And if they don't, then shame on me. I have to work harder then. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think. I, partly I'm asking that question selfishly to get advice because I recently realized this year would be year nine after somebody who's very important to me passed away. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to think about, like, how does that change the way I write about loss, like, nine years later as opposed to, like, 
nine months later, you know. And so it was mostly to, just to be like, Kimiko, help. God, what do I do? <laughs> you know what but, came to mind as you were speaking, and I was listening to you, <laughs> was that poem by Emily Dickinson. I guess it's I Felt a Funeral in My Brain, mm-hmm. where she goes through the different stages of grief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, where am I in that? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at the dash at the very end of the poem. Ooh. I'm at the dash. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> That means I've gone through all these stages of grief over 25 years with Mm. my mother, but I'm still, I'm still in some stage of grief. And if I felt I've gone through all of them, that I must be at that dash. So I guess you kind of never leave that dash, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 You're still somewhere in it. And maybe Emily Dickinson should have written more. (laughs) I don't know. But she was only going to write, what, three or four stanzas, whatever Yeah, very small paper. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. She's writing on the back of an envelope. Yeah. 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 Sometimes I wonder if she had, like, if someone had just given her a roll of butcher paper, what she would have done. Just kept going. (laughs) A scroll Dickinson. That's right. A scroll. Oh, gosh, that would have been magnificent. Kimiko, do you have a poem that you would like to read for our listeners and for us today? I would love to read this poem, A Dusting, which I've hardly read anywhere, so it would be a real pleasure. Yes! (laughs) Almost new shit. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) A Dusting. However mother has reappeared, say, as dust motes on a feather duster, scientists say the galaxy was thus created. This daybreak, she seeds a cumulus cloud. Wherever mother is bound, she's joined ashes, ashes, or dirt underfoot, or bits off tower north and tower south. Repurpose rarely arrives, whole cloth. From stardust, dust bunnies, dust bowl, dust unto dust, to Dunbar's, what of his love, what of his lust. Dust is a thing astronomers collect and where the sparrow bathes herself. Not a cloud in the sky, mother says as she hangs the laundry outside. Father paints on plein air, and we girls sweep crumbs under the rug. This summer, father sees inferno everywhere. No dust-ups from little girls. As a consequence, one scribbled, on the dustbins of history, and the other one gesticulated qualitatively. And the mother? The mother lived in the vacuum. Inside the senseless corridors, the daughter cannot respire. Inside the vulgar cosmic, the mother cannot be revived in streaming wet traffic. Nowadays, I lie down in the sunlight to see my mama moting around as sympathetic ash. Yes, one morning, whether misty or yellow, I'll be soot with her, elegiac and original. (laughs) 
so we like to ask our guests. Uh, this is kind of like a, a little recommendation corner. Uh, I don't know what a recommendation corner is. I don't know why I said that. Uh, but we like <laughs> to ask our guests at every episode. Yeah, a little column. Um, for a knockout. Um, something, a piece of art, a poem, a movie, a potato chip, um, a particular flavor, something that has knocked you out recently and really impressed you. Is there anything you would like to recommend? Oh, oh boy, whenever listeners? anybody asks me that, I always draw a blank. Oh, mm-hmm. that's really, uh, hmm. I'm going to lie. Okay. <laughs> Please. Lies are on the menu. Whenever though. I come to Chicago, I go to the Art Institute. And you know when you go up those main big old stairs and you see uh, the Syrah, the pointillism? Mm-hmm. Syrah, yes. You go up there, but you turn right. And in one of those small galleries, there is a panel of, I think, four, five, six paintings as a series of the life of John the Baptist. Mm. Mm. And it makes me crazy because, well, it's beautiful. But also at that time, in each panel, they have John the Baptist like walking around. So you see him two or three or four times. (laughs) You know, when they're bringing his head in, you see the guy bringing this head in, and then you see the same guy in the same picture giving the head on a platter to the king. Um, It's phenomenal, you know? So they're creating on this flat surface movement. Hmm. You know, it's like a cartoon, but it's completely Hmm. static. And I have to see that every time I'm here because it makes me crazy. It's so beautiful and horrific, I'm just fascinated by it. I'm a little fascinated by the idea of severed heads, I have to say, calling Dr. Freud. <laughs> um, but I I need to see that. So is it is it the the time like flattened and in, in this weird way that that mm-hmm. is so affecting for you or what or is it more the severed head? Is it is it all of it or I guess it's all of it. It's yeah. it's the story. Mm. Um but I think even more than the story, it's the portrayal, and, you know, the background is very, very abstract looking. Hmm. It just makes me crazy. (laughs) And I love that feeling. (laughs) That kind of crazy, I love. So It's like a painting that you come and look at every time you're... Yeah, a little pilgrimage. Yeah, Hmm. I do. Just to make sure it still titillates you, and it's like, yep, that's crazy. That's right, that's right. My my scalp goes crazy. (laughs) So now it has come to my personal favorite part of the show, this versus that, in which we ask you to play God. So, um, goddess. Okay, God, or God, goddess, you know. God X. Gender if we're God X. God X. God X. God X. Oh, God X. Sure. oh yeah. Um, I'm all about God X. That sounds X. like somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth Acevedo, anything if you're listening that, to this, write that book. That rhymes, God X. Anything that rhymes with dominatrix. Yes. God X. <laughs> Ooh, kinky God. Okay, that's a nice thought. Put it in the spank bank. All right. Uh, so, so we're going to give you two things, uh, and we're going to ask you which of them would win in a fight. So in this corner today, we have undefeated champion Portals. And uh-huh. in this other corner, we have other undefeated champion Dust. Who wins in a fight? Portals or Dust? 
This might be one of our, like our weirdest ones so okay. far. Well, first of all, I don't want them in corners. Okay. That bugs me. Okay. I would want them <laughs> to be more like sumo players standing in the middle of a square. Ooh. With like a circle of, I think it's salt or something yes. like yes. that. Anyway, Great. okay. You got it. Um, Pink Himalayan salt. It's like step it up. <laughs> okay. And you're going to step on it barefoot and yeah. it's going to hurt. Um, I would have to say portal Ooh. because a portal is going to pull in or push out the dust. Hmm. So, But is the dust ever then defeated? I'm just imagining the dust like clogging the portal. Now. Well, <laughs> if, yeah, a vacuum. <laughs> oh, so maybe they they more like unite. So portal wins, well, but really just becomes a vacuum. So yeah, well, why does someone win. have to win anyway? Uh, nobody has to win. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. how the first vacuum cleanup was okay. made. Uh, <laughs> a portal and some dust in a sumo ring. Decided <laughs> <laughs> to join forces. And that's how Hoover started. Oh, my gosh. Long, long ago. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you if they want to if, if find you in the world? Do they just have um, to snail mail you or... No, they can find me. Uh, I use my Queens College email address. Oh, don't give so, that. So, <laughs> okay. Um, well, what do you mean then? I don't know. I, oh, I'm so okay. used to asking. Like, I don't know. People give like their social media if they have it. Oh, okay. I don't have that. Okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. Well, I I do have a website. Okay, they can find me on that website. The the Chapbook Brood is out in the world. It and, is out in the world, and the new book will be out sometime. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you so much. I love you both. Yo. <laughs> Thank the Lord for Kimiko Han. Oh, all the lords. All of the lords. All of the, the lords. The old gods and the new. Oh my god. And the and the in the middle gods. The current <laughs> gods so of like, now. Like not vintage, but like just like outdated gods. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thrift shop gods. Everything she was saying was so good. I was I was really vibing with what she was saying about those portals. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you can like open up space to be transported <laughs> mm-hmm. in the poem because of like words doing lots of extra work. Yeah. And like that creates a resonance that you can like move into. That's mm-hmm. And especially like that being about trusting the reader, right? Yeah, so for totally. them to like take themselves wherever they need to go. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Which is sometimes kind of a risk. <laughs> yes, it is. Because sometimes people take themselves to some wild places. Right. Just enter a portal into just uh, outer space. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I'm, that's not where we were and trying to go. <laughs> a portal outside they write mine. Uh-huh. Okay, um, Franny, what is the wrongest portal anybody has ever went through in one of your poems. Like the wrongest turn. Yeah, you know, like sometimes we get people that come up to you after a reading and like, oh, I loved that poem because it was about blah, blah, blah. You're just right. like, bitch. Uh, like, I don't even have a dog. What yeah. You, <laughs> you know, there's a misinterpretation of a poem that's like weirdly common. I have a poem called Pussy Monster. Love it. Where I take the words of a Lil Wayne song and then reorder the words um, in order of the frequency, the number of times that the word, each word appears in the song. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw on YouTube that some people had commented. I don't know why I was in the comments, but um, this was a long time ago. But they, but somebody had commented like, this poem is about like how hip hop is like so meaningless and like oh, so much hip hop these days is so stupid or whatever. And and it was like, well, first of all, like this isn't like a this isn't this this 
song that I'm referencing isn't even hip hop these days. Like, like it's an old Lil Wayne song. Mm-hmm. I was kind of freaked out by that interpretation because that's like so far from what I was trying to talk about. And you know, I I think the the poem was really just like an experiment with what would happen if I like looked at this piece of text that had the word pussy in it a lot. And mm-hmm. like just like I was just like, what would happen if this if we like just rearranged it so that all the times that he said pussy were in one place? Mm-hmm. It was a critique that I wasn't even trying to make and like mm. so misdirected. And mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want my poem to like become a weapon in someone else's hand for the thing that they're trying to attack that I'm not trying to attack. And so I was sort of like, uh, like maybe I'll like stop performing it for a while. Mm-hmm. What about you? Well, see, I'm not even going to answer this the right way, but I think sometimes people don't even listen to the poem for the portals. Like this was a situation where this woman came up to mm-hmm. me and I think she was just looking at my black ass to be a portal. Because like I do have a lot mm-hmm. of poems about like, you know, racial, you know, issues and dynamics in this country and stuff like that. But this particular I night so, yeah. I did, I was like, you know what? I'm going to like suck a dick in every poem. And it was like just like the sex set, right? Yeah. And this white woman comes up to me crying after and she's just like oh my god everything you had to say about black boys in this country tonight was so and I was just like and I like said everything I was like that wasn't me bitch I was just like was this half a like outside just like watching YouTube you know yeah. <laughs> and then coming in so yeah and I had to go back and look at the set I was like well did I like accidentally like have a racial critique tonight so yeah so it wasn't even a portal it was more of the situation where I think like somebody uses poetry to like feel whatever they need to feel really and they're just feel. gonna read whatever they want to into also, it that sounds like a hard case because it sounds like you were putting together a set that was like a joyous set like a joyous oh, some sad set. in there Sure, sure, sure. But for then somebody to like walk away from that with mm-hmm. like, wow, thanks for letting me cry about black death. Yeah. Like when that wasn't your intention is like, that sounds so weird. Yeah, totes was weird. Yeah. And in the moments like that, I also just wish that there were real portals that I could push people through uh- <laughs> <laughs> so they could get the hell away from me. Uh, maybe let's slip through some portals and uh, portal yeah, through the end you. of the show. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so who are we thanking this week? Well, speaking of portals, I'm going to uh, thank my siblings, Bridget and Paul, um, always, but especially for um, showing me the video game Portal and Ooh. Portal 2. Um, but also just generally Generally, for allowing me to have like a little tiny bit of my pinky into what the gaming world is like mm-hmm. in general. <laughs> okay, cool. I'm gonna also do a portal related thank you. Ooh. I want to thank Rick and Morty for making marijuana the funnest adventure ever. Um, <laughs> I get high and I watch that show, and my Ooh. my sweet lord, those boys slip through some portals. Those, boy. <laughs> those boys, they slip through some portals. I think it's a little too scary for me to watch super high. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Right, let's watch it together. I have some good weed. <laughs> okay, all right, cool. Um, we should also. Thanks some normal folks. Yes. We would like- <laughs> We'd like to thank the Poetry Foundation, especially, as always, Idalmi Noriega. We want to thank um, Post Loudness. Thank you to our producer, Daniel Kissinger. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. You're already listening to it. But tell your friends to hop on SoundCloud, on NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media. We are at BS the Podcast, wherever you may be. Comment and rate. We always would love to hear from y'all to see what y'all are thinking and give us a nice little, you know, five-star situation. If you don't like what you're hearing, then just stop listening to us, maybe. Um, You know, Rachel Zucker's got some good stuff going on at a common place if this isn't what you're looking for. (laughs) (laughs) That was a series, right? Shout out out to Rachel Zucker. She has a great podcast. And with that, I think we're done. We will see y'all next time. Not like CC, but you know, like hearsay. Hearsay. There should be a word for that. Yeah, well... To see with your ears. We'll 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 talk into your ear hole next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>